0: So, the multilateral construct that we saw coming out of the Second World War, the multilateral construct which we assume, the multilateral construct which underpins the United Nations, maybe cannot be presumed. Something far more polilateral has to be considered.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Natalie Alexander, and welcome to The Next Page, Our podcast at the UN Library and Archives Geneva designed to advance conversations on multilateralism. Today we have a guest joining us all the way online from London. His name is Dr. Randolph Kent, and he is the director of the Humanitarian Futures Initiative, but also visiting professor at the African Leadership Centre at King's College in London, and is also working with the Royal United Services Institute on a program called The Futures Project. So, Dr. Kent, thank you so much for joining us on the next page.
0: Thank you very much, Natalie. Delighted to be here.
1: We're very glad you could come and join us online. And you've had you know, many experiences on your journey, including with the UN. So just to begin, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners briefly a bit your story. Um, what have been some key moments from your career and how have they led you to where you are today at Humanitarian Futures?
0: Thank you very much, Natalie. Let me just begin with my career, just a, a quick review of where I started with the UN and what it meant to me and how I learned what I think are important lessons as we look to the vulnerabilities and the opportunities that we all as a global community will have to face. It's interesting that when I was assigned to Ethiopia back during the famine in the 1980s, that what we call the humanitarian structure or sector was really very undetermined. There was no true basis or consistency. And what we began to see is that then what was regarded as pandemonium, in other words, the inability of uh, humanitarian organizations to get together, to have a a focus, a common focus, just wasn't there. Now, this began to change, and by the time I got to Sudan in the late 1980s, we really began to see a far more coherent humanitarian construct. But one of the things that I picked up when I was uh, serving as the emergency coordinator in the Sudan was that the sector that we had had now become a sector which was composed of different organizational segments that were reluctant to interact. And that reluctance, I think, is a major issue that pervaded the rest of my career. And I think even where we are today in terms of humanitarian construct. After Sudan, I went to New York to work with the undersecretary general who dealt with humanitarian issues. And what I really began to see, although I should have seen it beforehand, is the true political dynamics of humanitarian issues. So it's not a question of relief and assistance being outside the political construct. All too often, humanitarian assistance was about politics and that was i think fascinating but extremely disconcerting after that after new york and geneva i then went to rwanda in 1994-95 as you know this was a tragic period of the humanitarian sector and the global sector because what we had seen was a genocide resulting in the loss of 800,000 people massacred in three months. Now, I mention this because not only was it an extraordinary tragedy, but what really came to my mind as we look back at that Rwanda crisis was, as a humanitarian coordinator, what we did is to pile in tons of quote unquote, humanitarian assistance. We piled in the clothing and the food and the shelter. But what we forgot to do, what we didn't do, is to say, when a country loses 800,000 people in three months, where's the social psychological assistance? Where's the psychological assistance? What are the assumptions that we make and made about what others need, and here we begin to get something which I think really has to be seen, understood, and changed. And what were they? One is, who were we to just assume that we knew what Rwanda required? Why and where was the discourse? And that was all too often absent. The second thing that relates very closely is our perception of, we're the global north the humanitarian interveners, and we are inherently resilient. And the global south is vulnerable. And in a sense, the resilient north can guide, determine what the vulnerable south needs. And that, too, came out of Rwanda. I think something that also is very important, I believe, for not only the humanitarian sector, but for an increasingly vulnerable, global community. And that struck me when I went to Kosovo, I was the humanitarian coordinator, and we were faced with an extraordinary amount of displaced people, refugees, but at the time, we really didn't have the resources to deal with that number of displacement. But it's interesting that the NATO forces, and in this case, the British forces, took an initiative to develop camps for the displaced, be they refugees or just displaced within country, set up camps, provided assistance, food and the like far better than we were able to do. And you sit back and say, well, who really is the humanitarian? What are the boundaries of a humanitarian worker? What does one mean by those with humanitarian roles and responsibilities? Is it humanitarian sector? Is it The military? Where's the private sector? And in one sense, what came out of Kosovo for me was well, who is the humanitarian? Now, I went after Kosovo to Somalia. And Somalia was fascinating in so many ways. In the midst of conflict and extraordinary upheaval, we had hoped that maybe we were now getting towards a place where there might be peace in a kind of foreseeable future. But the fact of the matter is we still had to deal with conflict throughout. That it seemed to be a country that was breaking up, that there was no coherence or consistency. And then we were faced with a cattle epidemic in a country that was so dependent upon livestock and the trading of livestock. And here, what were we going to do? And then what was really interesting, as we were groping and looking for solutions, we began to pick up the fact that there were now more and more veterinarians from Somalia through the conflict zones all the way to Somaliland who were monitoring the movement of cattle all the way across the country. And how? Through mobile telephones. And what came out of this was, where does one look for innovation? Were we sufficiently sensitive to the kind of innovations that were occurring in Somalia when we were looking for solutions that we thought would be best? So what did I learn? From my experience, when it comes to the humanitarian sector, when it comes to global vulnerability, I think the first thing is we have to look at the kind of systems that we have in place, which we didn't have in Ethiopia. We have to get away from institutional rivalries, or we will not really come up with the kind of integrated solutions that are so essential. I think we cannot assume that we can determine what the vulnerable and the affected are like. Different kinds of engagement are necessary. And that is certainly what Rwanda showed me. And then Kosovo raises the fundamental question in the global community, well, who are the humanitarians? And then, as I recall and think back on the challenges of Somalia, how do we look for innovation that is appropriate to meet the kind of crises that we will have to face? And Natalie, these are the sort of issues that came from my career in the United Nations And which led me then to the whole concern with future humanitarian challenges, or in other words, humanitarian futures.
1: Thank you, Randolph, for sharing all of that. And definitely you have seen a lot in your career and we could talk about a range of things today but seeing as you've also been working a lot through different crises one thing to hone in on today is you know the work on analyzing the global issues and the global threats that we face today and how effective are we as an international community to to be able to manage and respond to these to these threats um, so you're working at humanitarian futures i was wondering if we could begin firstly with a definition of what is a global threat? In in your work, what do you define as a global threat that we should be really looking at today?
0: Fine, thank you. I think, that if if I may just give a kind of overall framework for this, and that is, how do we see the global community in which we are all part of? And whatever one says about the kind of rise of conflict, the kind of isolation that seems to be emerging, the kind of populism that seems to be isolating countries, the fact of the matter is, we are interconnected, interrelated, and interdependent. Now, let me just then move on to the kind of crises that I think we should be sensitive to. I mean, I think if you take a look at the present crisis drivers, things such as the erosion of the Earth's ecological bandwidth, the possibility of bioengineered pandemics, The whole question of cybersecurity failures, and dare I say, an issue that we too often ignore, and that is the persistence of weapons of mass destruction. And then, obviously, perhaps the downsides of transformative technologies. These are all exponential factors which define present crisis drivers and their impacts. And in that context, I haven't mentioned climate change and its consequences. And I think that is also a crisis driver that we're very aware of. One of the other crisis drivers that I think has global impacts is this whole question of converging crisis drivers. For example, take hypothetically a severe drought in Eastern Europe, conflict driven Mass displacement, let's say in the Far East, and a breakdown in software supply chains altogether, which could trigger hitherto unparalleled financial crises. Now, this, I think, has been underscored by the United Nations when the United Nations Development Program's 2020 Development Report pointed to another example of converging crisis disasters when it noted that climate change plays a large role in reducing. Average incomes, particularly in low-income countries, increasing the numbers of people experience hunger and the numbers of people affected by climate and weather disasters. In other words, all these different components converge to lead to the possibility of a global crisis. Let me also mention another, and that is something we call synchronous failures and global collapse. So what do we mean by synchronous failures? And that is something, an event, an issue, a threat that is all-encompassing. So take cyber systems and cyber infrastructures. Those cyber systems will most likely be based more and more on outer space. Now, what happens if those systems are destroyed or crippled, at least, by outer space debris or by an asteroid? What would its impacts be? What happens when in the 21st century, the fundamental cyber system collapse? One single issue now leaves the global community under very severe threat. And let me give you one other type that I think we need to mention and consider. And that is what you might call simultaneous crisis drivers that have parallel impacts. These are separate crises that are now beginning to happen hypothetically across the globe. So let's just say a mega tsunami takes place at the same time a kind of 2008 financial crisis occurs. And at the same time, conflict ensues between Saudi Arabian and the Iranian coalitions all over perhaps a 12-month period, all affecting stability, all affecting systems, but in their entirety, really impacting upon the survival and security of the global system. So these simultaneous crisis drivers, these synchronous failures, these cascading risks and converging crisis drivers, and certainly what we face today, are all the types of crisis drivers that we have to be very sensitive to now and certainly in the future
1: this is really fascinating and i think what i take away quite clearly is that we have to to note how interconnected and intersectional the global crises we face are today so yeah, i'm wondering yeah. if if you're able to connect this to to futures thinking now so what is futures thinking and how will it help us to be able to manage and, and predict and react to these interconnected crises that we are facing now, but also in the future?
0: No, Natalie, one of the things, I remember we had this study at something in the UK called the Royal United Services Institute. And we had a very a very interesting and distinguished panel who were asked to explore these kind of issues. And at the very last, somebody who had extensive experience in british government it was a minister etc said you know one of the greatest threats that the global community has to face is organizational behavior it is the stovepiped self-serving organizational behavior that is reluctant to go beyond the comfort zones to go beyond and look at issues that leave too many questions unanswered is a threat as perceived by the organization to its survival. And I really do take that point that the danger of organizational behavior, and I think that we have to be very sensitive to its consequences. And now that leads me to this whole question of what is humanitarian futures thinking? The first thing I really want to underscore is that it is not about prediction. It is trying to get an organization to think what might be and really do my capacities to deal with those kind of plausible, possible threats really are able to deal with these kind of issues. Are we willing to be more speculative? Are we willing to understand, and this is critical, are we willing to understand the challenges that we have to face So what is humanitarian futures about? And what did we try and do? And what is futures about? And as I said earlier, futures is not about prediction. Futures is about, for us, sensitizing organizations to the what might be. So I'd say there are five things that we try and achieve. The first is that by using futures methodology, by bringing to the fore plausible threats, and testing how organizations might deal with this, what we really want to do is to say, how anticipatory are you? Do you have the capacity to be sufficiently adaptable? How adaptive are you? So we have anticipation, in other words, the willingness to think differently, to look for the what might be's, and in asking that, does one have the adaptive capacity to adjust to those plausible threats. I think the third thing after anticipation and adaptation that we look for is this whole question of collaboration. It is fascinating, and now I go back to my experience in the Sudan, the reluctance in so many ways that organizations have to really collaborate on a consistent and integrated basis. But if we don't have that kind of level of collaboration, we will not really be able to deal with the complex crises that we will inevitably have to face, whatever they might be. So how does one collaborate? What are the advantages of collaboration that not only ensures an integrated approach to dealing with a common threat, but where collaboration is also an advantage to me? So new forms of collaboration is the third kind of thing that we look for. And here again, where does one look for innovation? Is innovation just something you look for to solve a problem? Or does one go beyond the immediate problem solving into exploring what sorts of innovations might be of use over time to enhance our anticipative capacities, our ability to be more adaptive, and dare I say, also to make collaboration far more effective. I think the last thing, the fifth thing that I'd like to mention in the context that we look at futures has to deal with leadership. And I do believe that the hierarchical structure that we now see inherent in organizations really are not and do not have the capacity to deal quickly and sensitively to the kind of crisis drivers that we will have to consider. Organizations, as been said so often, have to be flatter. But in terms of leadership, the leader has to be willing to give authority and decision-making to others that normally in a hierarchical structure would not have it. A leader has to be a mentor, helping those who do have to make decisions at different levels, at different times, et cetera, guiding them and helping them. In other words, that the whole concept underpinning the hierarchical organization when it comes to leadership also has to change. And so these are the kind of things that we try and pursue when we talk about futures, futures thinking, and certainly that kind of thinking in the humanitarian context.
1: Randolph, I'm I'm wondering then how we can translate This learning, where can you see that we can work on on futures thinking multilaterally, especially at the UN?
0: You know, one of the things that we have to do at the UN is to try and break away from our own organizational stovepipes. So in my time, the survival of individual organizations, be it WFP, UNICEF, FAO, and on and on, they're independence of action, the way they gain resources, all too often dominate their behavior. Now, this is not to say that that there's no awareness of this. To the contrary, the Interagency Standing Committee way back, you know, another two decades ago, was clearly a step towards trying to deal with these kind of stovepiped issues. So it's not that the UN structure is insensitive to this, but it is very difficult for them to achieve the kind of issues which I mentioned when it comes to futures. That said, I think there's steps in the right direction. I think the Secretary General's common agenda, when he recognized the importance of bringing to the decision-making table, the private sector, communities, the social networks, And on these kind of structures, what we conventionally call the multilateral structure, these kind of bodies now would be part, in a sense, of the identification, monitoring, and mitigating potential global threats.
1: I would like to then keep going on on this because you do mention multilateralism. And I recently read one of your, your papers called Building an International Architecture for Managing Global Threats, which is part of your work with the Royal United Services Institute. And you mention that actually one of the global threats we're facing is organisational behaviour and comfort zones of multilateral institutions. And you argue that polylateralism is one way that we're going to be able to face these global challenges uh, together. So could you explain a bit more for us? what is polylateralism and what does it mean in terms of multilateralism?
0: Right. One of, the, one of the difficulties in discussing multilateralism versus polylateralism is that it's not a question of choice. Multilateralism certainly existed. We know that it emerged out of the aspirations of the Second World War. It was a state-based, quote-unquote, multilateralism. And based upon the assumption that ultimately the role of state would determine the directions of international organizations, the creation and enforcement of binding treaties and the identification of issues of global consequence, it reflected the global architecture of the time and for many continues to do so. Now, I have to emphasize that this as one looks to the possibility of polylateralism, it's not an issue of choice. It is a question of, is this where the global architecture is evolving? Do we have to be sensitive to the fact that the multilateral construct is perhaps eroding? It doesn't have the same force. And why? Because there are emerging entities that are, challenging in various ways the authority of the state-based system. It's not a question of choice. It's a question of, that seems to be the case, atomization in that sense, where so many social, political, and economic dynamics are determined in so many ways by what I call fluid, self-organizing entities. Now, these self-organizing entities, be they the private sector, the social networking, exist in parallel and frequently independently of conventional state structures. And the assumptions and processes that normally guide economic, political, and social institutions might be more polylateral where those outside what you might call the conventional multilateral structure have impacts upon the global dynamics, upon the ways that key events, security, protection, creation of global threats, and mitigating global threats may well go beyond the multilateral construct per se. I mean, I think to some extent, the argument about multilateralism conceptually, perhaps will give way to polylateralism when it comes to technological transformations. The proliferation of communications technologies will be a kind of factor in moving the concentration of power, and this is critical. Where is the concentration of power? Away from states and institutions, and in various ways, will transfer it to alternative virtual and physical networks, organizations, local communities, and individuals to a very significant degree. And this is a, such a key point. The sheer complexity will of the global community and what we have to face will lead to a kind of polylateralism and polylateralism, which in turn will see the kind of issues and the kind of solutions which are not state-based. So the multilateral construct that we saw coming out of the Second World War, the multilateral construct, which we assume, the multilateral construct, which underpins the United Nations, maybe cannot be presumed. Something far more polylateral has to be considered. And in so saying, two points I'd like to make. One is, more and more, many analysts see that we're dealing with what you might call the overburdened state too many contending pressures, too many factors that those within states, citizens, etc., expect, but they are necessarily conflictual and contending. The state, less and less, it has been argued, has the capacity to deal with that. Also, there are those who criticize the United Nations as a very key multilateral construct to have shown very little progress in dealing with some of the greatest solutions which we face. In part, it's not due only to the structure of the United Nations. It has to do with the way states use the United Nations. But it also explains why other sectors, those outside the state, seek their solutions to problems not necessarily within the conventional multilateral construct.
1: And what will this mean practically if we look at building polylateralism? What does this mean for the UN? What will it take to get there? Does it mean kind of redesigning everything? Or as you say, you know, is it an evolution that we to to kind of live through?
0: You know, that's such a good point, because I think when I do talk about polylateralism, people say, you know, well, how do we construct it? Polylateralism is not something that one creates. It's not a tool that is manufactured. It is a point in the history of the modern system of governance where more and more there are actors who are not part or are unwilling to just rely upon the multilateral construct. More and more there are entities, be it the private sector, be it the social communications, be it many communities, by the way, be the urban communities where one urban body would perhaps have more in common with another than would they do with their respective states. So all we're talking about is this is nothing that we can create. It is something that, if the assumptions that we are moving into a more polylateral construct is the case, is a paradigm that seems to decision makers to underpin our global community, then now an answer to your question. We have to be very clear about how we use together, how we collaborate states, non-state actors to come up with global solutions. We have to be sensitive to polylateral construct where states per se are not the dominant determinants of action.
1: Very, very interesting. Dr. Randolph, we've talked about a lot of a lot of things today and, and I'm wondering if we could just end on one last question for you. And that is, do you have hope for us as a global community that we're going to meet these challenges and threats that you mentioned? Will we make it and what will it take?
0: I attended a lecture by a very eminent historian named Margaret Macmillan, who's done a lot of work on the First World War and its consequences. And s- someone asked, Professor Macmillan, are wars always bad? And she said, one has to understand that the consequences of war can often be positive societal change. And to some extent, one saw that in the post-World War II, treaties and alignments and structures such as the UN. I wondered, in answer to your question, whether what we're going to see As there's so many contending issues that where crises are almost become a normal pattern of life, be it the Ukraine, be it pandemics, be it financial collapse, be it, if you like, the decrease and decreasing availability of key resources, the consequence of climate change, and on and on that we see now. I wonder if this is the equivalent of war. And maybe out of this, we might see lessons that actually are recognized as lessons that are common, but are essential for our own individual survival. And maybe this narrative of crises that we are going through now might lead us to a kind of post-war world where we now begin to recognize we need to modify our constructs we need to make them more sensitive to the kind of what might be. We have to change our organizational behavior. We have to learn more about new forms of collaboration. And that might be a very positive result of where we are now in this world full of crises and populism and collapsing governmental structures.
1: Thank you very much for your final words there. And actually, we do have an episode on the podcast with Margaret McMillan, so we'll make sure to also have that in the show notes. We'll also include the link to Humanitarian Futures Online, as well as your recent paper, Building an International Architecture for Managing Global Threats. Dr. Randolph Kent, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, and we wish you all the best as you continue your work. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much.